speaking with Alex Sion. At City Ventures, Alex is the global consumer banking lead for the D10X program, which incubates new products and businesses designed to generate new and organic growth for City. Alex is a pioneer in fintech, having co-founded Movin, the world's first mobile fintech bank. Alex and I talk about how behavioral science and experimentation are changing how we think about banking. Hi. Hey, Kelly, how are you? I'm good, it's great to see you. Good to see you as well. Well, I know that there are so many things that we wanted to talk about. And I know in some of our last conversations, we dove right into some really interesting issues. Um, we're yeah. very passionate about innovation. We're passionate about science. We're passionate about design, passionate about helping people make better financial decisions. You know, and there's lots of people who are interested in the same things that we are, but You've got a very interesting uh, vantage point with all of this. Would you mind talking, um, I guess, first of all, about some of your prior projects? Talk about how design and science have come together for you. My, my job at City is I run a group uh, for global consumer banking that is about exploring new organic growth through the development of new products, new businesses, new concepts, new, new kind of markets for city. And one of the areas or, you know, kind of a central thesis to that growth is that it will be driven by essentially unleashing different kinds of data uh, insights to clients to help them make better decisions based upon data, the use of digital and, and a lot of new kind of an emerging technologies that are out there. So fundamentally, my group spends a lot of time looking at the world of, of data and kind of unique patterns that we can see uh, within the data and mobilizing that data to create uh, essentially a different way in which banks, uh, or uh, rather I'd say with the way people can engage with their money and avail themselves of the services and products that, that banks provide. It, it sounds pretty simple, but, at the, but the, at the end of the day, banks really, it's a new territory for banking. So banking traditionally has been, you know, to be frank, a very transactional business, right? Where the intent or the focus of the model is not necessarily to help customers make choices, it's to provide a set of services that just customers can use. So this new space of essentially helping to guide, facilitate, uh, influence customer behaviors and choices is, is actually rather new for the entire financial services industry. So I think it's, you know, it's it, our team spends a ton of time with it. We work with folks like, like yourselves to do those some of the projects. And specifically, I'll note that a couple of the projects that we've worked on is one was really kind of, you know, helping consumers and the banks, uh, you know, avail themselves of, of credit in a new way, right? So the typical way of kind of of applying for getting credit for a consumer is, is you make an application that's run against a typical credit score, and then you either have good credit or you don't. And then, you know, you get a, a line of credit from the bank based upon that decision making. And a lot of the kind of credit scoring in the past 
has has been focusing on, focusing a lot of on financial measures, you know, measures of activity and transactional measures in the financial services space. You know, we 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 worked in the past with your team to develop out and, and to think through new mo- new kinds of data and insight into customer behaviors. That essentially attitudes, you know, uh, towards debt, towards other aspects of their lives outside of financial services, behaviors that would be indicative of responsible credit usage that we could correlate to essentially what would it would end up being good credit behaviors. So it's just a, it's just one example of the kind of way that we're working to to kind of flip the lens on the way that we look at data, customer behaviors, and the usage of technology to kind of open up new spaces for city. Yeah, that's fantastic. I think that that intersection between data and behavior is very much that new frontier or new way of putting it is bringing together data science and behavioral science. I think our organizations were able to bring together that richness of the, the data science and the data science capabilities that you have with yep. those behavioral science insights to, yep. to absolutely um, you know, transform and solve some of these very complex banking problems. Yes, absolutely. That history of, of data science and even that evolution of innovation in banking has been such an interesting arc. I remember when data science really started to become a thing Remember back in the early 90s, you know, we were starting to talk about big data and big data itself was quite a transformation, but it wasn't enough. And I'd love to hear your continued views on the importance of behavioral science, but also maybe some of the complexities in the same way we face challenges with big data. And it's, you know, we all were like, oh, you know, big data, but what do you do with it? Yes. Uh, and so what's that arc, what's that evolution of innovation um, you know, look like to you? Yeah, I, I firmly believe that behavioral finance is the new frontier for the, the, the whole world of money, right? Um, and that we have just begun our journey to understand, you know, kind of the, the implications of behavioral, uh, behavioral finance and sort of understanding behavioral behaviors in the world of money. And as we've talked in the past, I, I think the odd thing to me is that the, the understanding of how behaviors impact micro and macro markets has, has been there for quite some time, but it's been sort of like accounted for in volatility, right? Like it's, a, it's either like it, for a brand and the value of a company, it was accounted for in what, what we would call goodwill all along, we kind of knew that that you know the, the how consumers behave, perceives, make decisions have a fundamental impact on the world of money. But we were just never really rigorous uh, in our framing of that and our understanding of that, in in how we could collect data on that and then and then use it to design strategies, right? Essentially, for products, for the markets, for things like that. And I really do think it is just beginnings as we sort of mature on this path which is, is a joint path to me that, that really, you know, obviously academics, practitioners within the industry, economists and governments will all be around. It will really transform. It'll end up transforming the way that, that money works, right? Like, like how people perceive money works. It'll, it'll impact pricing. It'll impact, you know, the structure of products. 
But I do think sort of if I separate kind of the behavioral data versus kind of the raw transactional data, I, I actually think we, we've kind of tapped out on the big data aspect of just pure transaction, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, supply, demand, pricing, right? There, there's, there's always more to know, but like the pure kind of old school economics stuff, we're swimming in that data and we have pretty good understanding of how, how that moves things up or down or influences, you know, uh, uh, decisions. But the, the psychological side of it, right, the, the human side of it, which is a huge, huge part of the equation, it's not purely rational, you know, uh, as, as we all kind of thought, you know, the world doesn't work purely rationally, uh, the way that the kind of the old school models, uh, economic models um, had, had assumed. And so uh, as we get deeper understanding of that, I do think that that's, that is absolutely the, the future so just, you know, kind of to take it back to the project we worked on, if you think about FICO as essentially the old school economic way of thinking about big data and from a purely transactional, you know, kind of what can I see about what consumers do, you know, kind of standpoint and behavioral finance as how, what do consumers believe? What, are, what do they intend? You know, what's motivating them um, to make choices that, that may be logical or illogical, you know, you know, kind of depending upon how you frame it, like that is really the, you know, where I think all innovation come from going forward. Absolutely. Yeah. The challenges that we face um, are, are interesting and, and obviously we, you know, are beneficiaries of some of this innovation starting to come to life, but it's difficult because the paradigms are so novel to the business worlds. And, and that's the paradigms of, for instance, psychology. And just yeah. digging deeper, uh, we talk about these heuristics, you know, the way that people make decisions. We talk about these biases as being so fundamental to how people think and, you know, as you said, what they, what they believe. But not only is that vocabulary novel, to organizations, bringing that to life inside the organization where we're able to operationalize using yeah. a scientific term, these concepts requires a tremendous amount of heavy lifting. A concept such as the fact that people are present biased is straightforward, we get it. You can, you know, someone who might not have heard that term before, you, you do a little bit of explanation like, oh yeah, okay, I get it. I, I know what you're talking about. But then to actually bring that to life, to inform a strategy, to inform a product design, to help a customer maintain a commitment to their own long-term well-being starts to become incredibly difficult because something like present bias, how do you see it? How do you operationalize that? How do you shape the data? How do you shape the customer experience and the product design in order to account for these things? So we go beyond theory into practical, operationalized innovation. And that lets us actually start to do some really cool techniques. Once we see that, then we can actually build really cool innovations that let us uncover that innovation. So, and, you know, and apply that insight. 
So for for instance, um, I've actually used the Movin app as a teaching study for my students on the use of a, of a simple design paradigm, uh, having your customer uh, interact with the app in a way that's very unique, but it is based on introducing just a titch of friction to help improve uh, people's present bias. I'd love it if you told the story. I've told it to myself, yeah. but I wanna hear the story from you. Yeah, no, I, I, you, I think you might be referring to the, the, the feature we created that you have to crack the window uh, in order to access the savings. And you're right, we were very much influenced by behavioral finance and, and psychology uh, at Move-In when, when head of user experience was, was a psychologist and we kind of like purposefully kind of uh, behavioral psychologists and we purposely pursued those backgrounds and our head of product, who is also kind of a, a, a kind of religious practitioner of, kind of you know, behavioral finance and behavioral science is now over at Commonwealth Bank in Australia. But yeah, I mean, we, we were all about, you know, at the end of the day, Movin's mission was we were very much driven by this mission of helping people to spend, save, and live smarter. So to us, it was not about access, you know, viewing your balance or accessing money or paying for things. It was about exposing your behaviors so that you'd be aware uh, of kind of the things you were doing with your money and be able to make conscious choices. Um, and that included uh, both spending, right? Like uh, the ability to kind of spend and maybe get feedback on the impact of that spend on your your longer term trajectory or your your patterns of behavior, like so you can mindlessly go through life and just be buying Starbucks every day. We would like to surface that context to say, hey, you just bought a star, you know, a Starbucks again on a Wednesday. You spent this much money dining out, which is a little bit higher than you typically do, right? You know, kind of in a month, and 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 you know, uh, visually kind of represent that in a red receipt. So that's just kind of one indicator. The other one we, we used is that like when you wanted to, you could, you know, automatically and promote, you know, behaviors of savings, we would surface opportunities for you to do so that were, that were sort of like in the moment, you know, like right after a spend, once you put some money away. But in order for you to access that spending, we would, uh, you could, you know, it wasn't as easy, easy as just like moving a, a dial to kind of move money over and, and begin to spend it. We wanted you to kind of crack the screen, like, you know, hit the screen three times and, and have this visual of cracking, you know, kind of the glass screen on your mobile phone to be able to access the cookie jar. And, and that little bit of friction kind of made you think, right? You know, like it, it made you kind of have to work for getting the savings uh, and, and kind of putting it into, into uh, spending. And we purposefully designed that so that it would cause that friction, you know, so that it wasn't so easy to kind of just blow your savings. So there's a lot of things that as we designed uh, over the years, we introduced from a UX standpoint with this explicit purpose of trying to trying to optimize behaviors around money. Alex, I feel like we should just clarify um, a couple of things. One, the tapping on the screen is a, it's a gentle tap. The cracking of the screen is just a, a it's just a graphical design yes. of lines appearing through a exactly. graphic, but you do still have to have the three taps and yes. the three taps create this, a little, a shocking moment, a sense yeah. of it is an emergency, reinforcing that concept that this should be done as a rare thing that you are breaking into your own savings account. And, 
Think of it in the same way as the visual of someone using a hammer to break the glass, break glass. the fire extinguisher. The fire extinguisher is there. If you need it, you can get it, but you need to pick up the hammer to access it and it's not an everyday thing. So it was a visual. But this, Alex, I think is such an incredible example of what we love to call these counterintuitives in behavioral science. You know, traditional approaches to user experience would not be where can we make it more difficult, equivalent to people picking up a hammer, breaking something in order to access their own money, and that this is better for the customer experience, and that this is actually what yeah. people want. Traditional yeah. design, traditional user experience design, or, or even in cases where companies aren't factoring in customer experience, they would not have thought that that would lead to, first of all, better customer outcomes, the actual like, hey, this friction does actually reduce people's likelihood to bother, but yeah. not only that, but people are actually happier with that friction and they yeah. want that. And it's a way to help them feel like the organization is more dialed in to their needs than when things are just simply executed without those behavioral insights. And I think that this is one of the things that's very difficult for organizations to accept and even harder to implement. I think this is why experimentation is so, so, so having a theory rich approach, right? That's what we would call all this, having a theory rich approach. You had a psychologist who was on your team, who helped design this concept, who understood what this might look like from a design perspective. So we had a theory that was counterintuitive to what might be common sense. And then I know that you guys are very open to experimentation, especially for these counterintuitives. Can you talk about more uh, about this culture of experimentation? Absolutely, because I, I think experimentation, if you want to play in the game of influencing behaviors, is absolutely essential. And I would say that you need to be in market, like you need to be kind of, you know, watching customers or, or, or you know, providing customers with things to react to versus more, you know, focusing on the traditional methods of surveys or focus groups or just asking them what they think. To me, the, the principles we had at Movin, which I now apply at City, definitely is that uh, in order to really understand customer behaviors, you have to you have to have them react to things in real time in the right environments, and then experiment, do tons of kind of A/B testing to kind of understand what works, what doesn't, and be able to iterate very rapidly on those things. It is something that digital companies do, you know, par for the course, and they're designed that way. But a lot of traditional institutions, you know, incumbent, large incumbent players, you know, in particular banks have a really hard time, obviously, you know, kind of working this way. But I think it's essential, right? If you want to innovate, you know, kind of in the world of behavioral finance and the world of UX, experimentation is, is absolutely critical. And that knowledge of audience uh, in, in their real, you know, you can't get to their psychology on a piece of paper, you, you only can provoke them, you know, get an understanding when they take an action. And so, yeah, that, that is kind of the way we did things at Movement and the, and the way we seek to do things uh, here at City and my group. One of the questions that I get asked a lot is, 
uh, some organizations actually do testing and they say, oh yeah, we, we do testing, we're, we're good. But they don't understand the absence of having this psychology theory. Sometimes I use this metaphor of it's one thing to uh, have this idea of like always be testing, you know, always be throwing, you know, ideas at the wall, kind of this like getting the spaghetti to stick by throwing, by throwing the, you know, getting that pasta and just throwing it at the wall. But I talk about the difference with the theory rich approaches before we start loading up this, this pasta machine that's aimed at the wall, we should think about some of the things that we actually know, like different sized noodles are probably gonna have a better probability of sticking. So instead of using like a spaghetti noodle or a ziti noodle, we should use like a fettuccine or a lasagna. So we can yeah. already start to improve the theory of what we're doing. And there's other things that we know about the level of starch, for instance, that's in a pasta. It, you can make it stickier or have it drier. And that starch will, again, change the probability of success. So before we load the machine and just sort of blindly try things, we can actually have a theory-rich approach. And what we've been talking about yeah. is specifically the discipline of psychology or behavioral insights to inform our yeah, our data science colleagues are fundamental to our work, but we need to work in tandem to help them know what to load in the machine. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that metaphor and your experience on that. 100% agree. My boss often refers to, you know, takes the same kind of metaphor you use, but, but talks about uh, a, a theoretical physics versus applied physics. And I talk about it within the context of applying scientific method and, and hypothesis in a way that, that you can now um, you know, gain conviction, like true conviction around business problems in a more, more rapid way. And kind of digital allows you to do that. The other thing that I, that I hear you kind of referring to thematically is I think the importance of having a mission, right, that is, that is um, kind of driving a philosophy right? That's driving you know, whether your product concept or your, your company concept. We benefited from moving enormously uh, just by that simple fact that we were, our mission was to help people spend, save, and live smarter. You, you'll find that a lot of large banks, incumbent banks, do not have a clear mission, right? A customer-centric mission around kind of what's their intent, right? Like it's maybe to provide financial stability for the global markets or, you know, something very broad, but doesn't really get to the heart. It's not an organizing principle at a customer level that can impact, you know, uh, uh, you know, aspirations around behaviors. So I think all three of these things, right, the applied physics, the hypothesis-driven scientific method fueled then by a customer-centric mission, right, is the recipe you need that kind of brings it all together. If you, if you combine all those things, then, you know, behavioral finance kind of scientific driven, test driven approach is just, it seems incompletely logical, but you have to get there first, right? Is uh, businesses have to kind of almost, uh, you know, kind of you know, see the value in all three of those elements. 100%. And there's so much of behavioral economics that can provide or fuel some of the fundamental premises that you've talked about we can recognize, for instance, that we all live with a huge say-do gap. And recognizing that say-do gap alone, an organization 
uh, can create a strategy merely around, you know, the say do gap. People say that they want this one thing, that they have these goals, but we fall short of those goals all of the time. Organizations have the opportunity to step in and say, we're going to help you um, close that say do gap and live that uh, happier, that happier, healthier, wealthier life. So behavioral economics can serve at that at that purpose-driven level as well as yeah. bring those behavioral insights to life, leverage that scientific method to run these experiments in order to see if we're getting that impact on the improvement of the lives of our of our customers. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think the uh, important thing to add to what you just mentioned, Kelly, is that it almost implies a lifetime value view of the customer that you have to have inherently that I think becomes a, a challenging construct for many financial institutions is this looking at the customer from a much more holistic kind of standpoint. The large digital platforms like Amazon, Google, and Apple do this naturally because they have so many multifaceted ways in which they engage with the customer that they they view the customer much more holistically inherently because of that. I think firms like City and a lot of the universal banks that do, you know, help people with their deposits and savings and credit and investments and, you know, and major life events, we think of those as products. That's about as holistic coverage of life as you can get, right? Like, uh, but we often kind of monetize by the product silo versus thinking about the holistic individual. And a lot of banks should find behavioral finances much more natural than they do because, but they don't view themselves as, as central as really money is to people's lives. And really then can become a, a very inspiring mission when you think of it that way. Yeah, having having spent over a decade in financial services uh, myself, I I absolutely think that that role that behavioral science can play in helping organizations unlock that connection between you know financial well being and uh, helping people achieve those goals is is paramount. You touched on the project that we did, um, which was very innovative, uh, where we uh, helped find novel ways to um, understand credit risk where we might not have had transactional data. Um, we also did some very cool work on the savings side as well that brought these yeah. principles to life. Yeah, absolutely. Both short-term and long-term. So one of the things that we, to your point about present bias, is we worked with work to try to visualize like how do you got to get people to think about their future selves and be able to kind of contemplate their, their future activities. It's one thing to kind of just more surgically ask people goals, you know, which, which kind of the wealth management, you know, industry does often and, and try to incent people by in some ways more fear. But I, what we found is that people, find goal planning, you know, really abstract and academic. And it's not, it's not as motivating because, because it's so far out in the future and people kind of understand so much volatility between the here versus the later, you know, even the, the goal of retirement, you might as well be talking academically about space travel or kind of going to Mars or anything like that. So we were kind of exploring with you guys different ways in which we can help people visualize their future selves in a much more tangible way and a personal way and whether or not that would be able to kind of 
be a way to help people conceptualize and, and, and really kind of motivate them to engage right in, in, in basic behaviors on near-term savings, right? Not necessarily huge, develop a, a very onerous long-term plan, but use that concept of a, of a more tangible personal, per, personal future self as a way to motivate existing savings behaviors, like very simple things that you could do kind of in the near term to kind of protect your future self. So like fascinating stuff. And it does get down to the heart of, you know, you, you, in order to, to trigger people to act on something, the financial services world, the banking world has had pretty well-known, um, you know, levers to pull. And, and it's simply they equate down to price and reward, right? As we, we will just kind of like, you know, mark something at a price that compels you to act or we'll provide rewarding with rewards, you know, mechanisms, which is basically a proxy for, for again, pricing or other economic value to drive motivation. But, but what everybody's struggling with in, within banking is those strategies are, are approaching diminishing returns, right? No longer are, can we economically, you know, feasibly keep bribing people to do things in a competitive environment, but, but people pretty much are getting overwhelmed by bribes. Right. And there's so many bribes out there that that you that you get kind of like, you know, overwhelmed by choices uh, and then just kind of ultimately shut down. So I think this this new avenue of providing more emotional, behavioral, psychological incentives, right, to action like the future self kind of effort we did with you, to me, is the is, it's a must do. Right. It's a must do because we still need to drive people to, to take action, right, and to engage, but those economic levers are, are, are uh, diminishing the returns. So, um, you know, I, I, again, it leads back to this, this understanding of behaviors and psychology is, is not a, a neat, you know, a nice thing to do. It's, it's a must thing to do. Yeah, and you're, and you're right back into these fundamental premises that every business leader should know about behavioral insights you know, it's not just about, you know, saving money that customers truly value. And they'll make a trade-off on these incentives for being able to achieve these bigger things, these bigger goals. And behavioral economics can help to um, reset and recalibrate kind of the standard go-to approaches that organizations use to impact and influence behavior. That awareness of these fundamental premises of behavioral economics, you know, that information isn't necessarily the right tool to impact and influence behavior, that incentives don't always lead to the outcomes that we want. Those, you know, and the, and the rest that go with, you know, the say-do gap that I mentioned earlier, these, these insights, um, are part of what makes our work with City so much fun because you you start with that as one of the you know key planks of our work together, but also um, the appreciation for the psychological insights, the behavioral insights that we bring to the table were welcome. There were you guys get it, appreciate it, and it's part of the DNA to have this interdisciplinary approach to create a, a welcome space for these insights. The fact that you guys are hypothesis-led, hypothesis-driven, what will 
you know, that is a question. How do we know that willingness to say, we don't have the insights for that, let's not run with our intuition. It's a hypothesis that we need to test. And then finally, another key strength that our team had and enjoyed so much in working with your organization that was kind of this pulling this, this uh, triumvirate together was the actual willingness to follow through and actually do the experiments. These, this, is, this is a difficult pack of insights that requires an appreciation of the scientific method that acquires an appreciation of behavioral insights to be able to unlock that innovation. But how would you talk to business leaders? Because some of the areas where they really want a shortcut is in bringing those experiments to life. Sometimes the behavioral insights is like, oh, that's great stuff. We love it. Implement. What advice? How do you, how do you convince others um, on the need for that, that delay? It's like, we love these ideas. Let's just do it. How do you convince others on the importance of that experimentation? I, I think it really gets back to that, you know, uh, brass tacks at a business level, the desire to continue to grow right, in new ways. And and I think growth is a challenge, right? Like every kind of traditional bank out there will, will, will if they're honest with themselves, will, will basically say that, that one, growth is a priority and two, it's a challenge. And there's diminishing returns on essentially the old playbooks. So if you can sort of get people to agree that new growth, right, is not, is not going to be achieved through the, the kind of old school methods, then at least you have that door open for new growth would probably be need to be pursued in a different way. And then it gets down to this kind of conversation we just had, which is, you know, and the way forward is probably some combination, right, of this changing customer behaviors, changing technology behaviors, changing macroeconomic social conditions, that are causing new patterns of behavior. You can be intuitive and understand that the world is changing. And for people who are seeking growth, change often equals opportunity. So, and then, right, then it's kind of getting into like, okay, well, how do I understand then those patterns of change, right? Like that, that will allow me to open up growth paths. Then it's pretty intuitive to say that the things we talked about are important. I need to understand the new behaviors of customers. I need to be scientific about my approach. Just like I would be scientific about testing a price, I need to be scientific about exploring a new behavior. And, you know, just like I need to, to be very experimental about pricing levels and strategies, I need to be experimental about UX, right? And, and sort of those different kinds of, you know, experiences that you deliver in the market. So I do think it's a multi-layered argument, right? To get somebody who's kind of in that traditional, um, you know, kind of business mindset to kind of get there. But I do think it, it is quite simple. It fundamentally derives though from the premise that growth is an aspiration and that the, the dynamics of growth are changing, right? Like the, those are the arguments that you have to, to you know, begin with. Because if you start at the level of customer behaviors or product, what, what I often call start at the idea level, that often doesn't work, right? Because then people, then you're competing against and almost accusing people of not, not being smart enough to think about customers. And, and people do, right? It's just that 
they're framed in, you know, they're, they're motivated or, or, or prioritizing different things. So it's got to begin with that growth priority, uh, in my opinion. Fantastic. Um, yeah, your explanations are, are, are fantastic. Um, I think that there's another, you know, what I would consider a, a technical question that I get asked all the time. And again, it's something that's new for people new to experimentation, which is understanding the difference between the rear view mirror effect out of analyzing big data and historical transactions versus the forward-looking view that experiments give us because we're testing hypotheses on choice architecture that is novel. We're putting people in novel situations. There are no priors on this. So we're designing experiments that help us look out the, the, you know, the, the forward window. So I'm not saying that, that one is better or more necessary than the other. We need to understand what's going on, learn from the past, but also have a view on the future. And these experiments give us a way to, to predict with, with reliability and validity the future. But I'd love to hear your take on how you explain that difference between you know, the correlational research out of big data and the causation research out of experimentation. Yeah, no, that's great. I never really framed it or thought of it in that way, but it gets down, it makes me think about firms that are focused on profitability of an existing business model to, to make you want to look backwards, right, at patterns and, and, and look to optimize things that you already know have worked or are sustaining, you know, sustaining something versus firms that are, are focused on growth, right, in kind of new segments and new channels, which, which, which naturally has to be biased towards more exploratory, kind of open, you know, kind of ways of thinking. And I think, to your point, maybe why it's been hard to kind of get, get some of this, uh, this thinking adopted by larger, more traditional firms is because they've been for so long, you know, used to kind of working in a backward-looking, optimized, what we know we know how to do right today view and growth hasn't been a priority right the, the world has been in kind of like this pretty stable place for some period of time it, it does make me reflect on the uniquely disruptive times that we're in i think people have been saying this for for some period of time that there's there's you know the world is is in this kind of really dynamic state some industries more than others but I do think that like this combination of generational, like of digital, of, of uh, socioeconomic and geopolitical kind of uh, activities of, of, of the pandemic and like all sorts of things, like it's, it's now, it's very difficult to argue, <laughs> right? Like now, like that backwards looking view, like the data in the past isn't gonna help you, <laughs> right? Like it, it's not gonna help you kind of understand these, these new emerging patterns. So you got to kind of really get out there. But I love the way you kind of framed it at the beginning, because I do think I never really thought of it that way. But I, but I often talk about the fact that that the old playbooks and the old models, the things that we're used to, you know, we were used to looking left to right versus up and down. And we and we, we've got to look, you know, not not saying that left to right doesn't exist anymore. But but up and down is really where you know, the opportunities and threats are coming from. So like, are you, you know, we're not doing a lot there and, and 
it, it sort of requires a different way of looking at data, looking at the world, the way you ask questions, you know, uh, is fundamentally different. Well, I very much value how you added the reality of the very dynamic and complexity of macroeconomic factors, making that rear view, uh, you know, not necessarily as, as valid today as it, as it would have been because of the, the pace of change. Alex, one of the things that is fundamental, I think, to your worldview is I would call you a scientific thinker. And when I've talked to marketers and business leaders who have never had any exposure to science or haven't had scientific training um, or the related disciplines, um, sometimes in engineering, there's a comfort with things like hypothesis versus uh, evidence versus intuition. And you know they don't have that lexicon and the paradigms that go with it. They feel uncomfortable. They talk about you know what our gut instinct says and what our intuition says and what our prior experience says and being able to understand how people feel requires more of an, an art as opposed to a science. And I've had great discussions and great debates with people to help them actually realize that often that curiosity, that desire for evidence, that willingness to uh, look deeper at things and wanting to approach it systematically, those are actually some of the core ingredients of what a scientific thinker is. Um, what's been some of your, your journey on talking to people who don't feel comfortable um, or don't recognize that scientific thinking that, that they actually have? How do you help yeah. them? It's, it's, that's a really good question. It's an, it's, and it is making me reflect. One of, the, one of the core characteristics we look for for people within my team is essentially is that product entrepreneurial spirit, right? Which is, and in particular, digital uh, product entrepreneurs. And at the, at the heart of that, what I would say is different between kind of the way business worked, has worked traditionally and how di biz digital businesses work is really fundamentally the, the ability to apply scientific method to, to come to business conviction on investments. Whereas before there was a lot of more, to your point, gut, like you, you, had, to, you had to use your gut market instinct to be able to, to know whether or not a product worked or not. In the world of digital and in venture capital, it's, it's about small bite-sized investments that either prove or disprove a hypothesis incrementally over time. If you prove it, you get your next round of capital. If you don't prove it, you don't until you, until you find that product market fit. Like that is essentially scientific method applied to creating a business. And, and that is part of the DNA of, of kind of everybody on my team. It's kind of a minimum characteristic uh, that you have to have. But to your point, it's very different than a lot of people in business think who have grown up in more of the traditional methods. I actually did a little teaching at, at, at business school for, for Georgetown University for a while. And I, I noted some of these problems, like in, in the way that we taught kind of what we were teaching uh, from a business standpoint and this kind of lack of teaching on newer ways to you know, apply scientific method right, to essentially marketing, product development, growth, things like that, um, that we're missing from the curriculum. You have to want to grow. If you're not interested in growth, then, then curiosity 
right? The, the heart of what you're talking about, right? The experimentation is really driven, driven by that desire to, to know something or to, the, you know, curiosity is fundamentally incented by growth. If you feel like you don't have a problem with growth and it's not a priority and you kind of know what you're doing, then like then, then it's a, then it's a dead end to begin with. If you desire to grow and recognize that things are changing, then it's, you have to, right? You have to be curious and, and you will feel at risk just going on your gut because of this inherent understanding of how dynamic and volatile, right? Human behaviors and people and attitudes are. So you, you, then it's a logical conclusion that you just have to get out there. So I do think there's a very intuitive way to explain it, but it hinges upon this desire to grow in new ways. Alex, as much as I absolutely love the projects that we get to work on to help you know, customers have their needs met, the most rewarding work that I do is working with leaders on helping transform their organization to embed behavioral insights and even more fundamentally scientific thinking within the business. Part of that is helping them understand how to hire a behavioral scientist and how to help them understand how to embed those practices within a team where they can be successful. But more importantly, it requires an organization that already understands uh, evidence over intuition, you know, fact versus fiction. And it's always such a delight to be able to talk to leaders who are already enlightened by the principles of science and the benefits to the organization that can come. So it's absolutely wonderful to spend time with you, Alex. I appreciate your time so much. A pleasure.